Um, I'm not going to preach. Um, It may be slightly slower than usual, which some of you might really appreciate. Uh, I've taken a migraine tablet, um, which has worked a treat, but I'm I'm on I'm on a different planet. It's a bad boy of a tablet, and it's uh, it's kind of it's not only knocked out the pain, it's knocked out most of my faculties as well. So, but God's grace, I'm sure, will overcome, and we'll have a we'll have a good time. So, we're starting a it's a six week series on Malachi, on the book of Malachi. Now, just to warn you, within that, on November the 8th, which is obviously when we move venue, Julian Adams will be with us from Manchester. Now, he's a friend, um, and I guess very gifted prophetically. And so I felt that it wouldn't probably be a great idea to say to him, yeah, just fit in with this sermon series, but I just really wanted him to come and bring whatever was on his heart. So actually, it's over six weeks, but it'll be five weeks in Malachi. Um, so that's where we're, that's where we're, where we're going to be going. Now, just to help you understand um, prophetic literature, because I don't know about you, but for me, these guys that we call the minor prophets, people like Zechariah, Micah, Nahum, Haggai, Amos, Jonah, but, well, maybe, maybe except for Jonah, but these other guys don't get read too much. Do you understand what I mean? They tend to get, you've got your big books, haven't you? You've got the Genesis and those ones at the start. Then you've got Psalms and then the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then you have these 12 minor prophets and then you've got the Gospels. And they take up a relatively small space. And so you can end up just thinking, do you know what? I've read it, didn't really get it. And so we'll go on to Matthew. Because it's the narrative and I understand. And they can tend to get missed and... And as a result, we can tend to not quite understand even what they're saying because either we don't read them much or we don't know how to read them. So just a quick, one quick comment that will really help you understand reading prophetic literature, and it's this. We tend to associate prophecy with predicting the future, and much of the prophets have future predictions in them. But primarily, that's not what they're about. Primarily, it is God using these men to call his people back to himself because they are straying in some way. There's what, 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 and, so, and the part of that is God um, recounting his deeds that he has done to show his faithfulness. Part of it is God promising what he will do, hence p- future predictions. But part of it is warning as well. There's lots of warning in the prophetic literature. And sometimes you can read it. And maybe if you're thinking, like, okay, today my reading is Amos 5, for example. You can then, after you've read it, you get up and you think, man, alive. I'm feeling pretty melancholic <laughs> because it's just a, a chapter on judgment and God says things in Amos 5 like I hate your gatherings <laughs> I hate it when you gather together and you can read that and you can start thinking God, you know and you think well that's my quiet time <laughs> I've done my cha- I read a chapter today and, I've over, and you think well what, what's this about what it's about is this is God pleading with his people saying please come back to me it's God's love but we know that God's love isn't sentimental, so it's not just kind of wishy-washy. God holds people to account and says, you're doing this. Why? Where's your trust in me? And so that's the whole flavour of prophetic literature in a, in a nutshell, if you like. And uh, it's what we have in Malachi. And I say this reverently, but if you read Malachi, it reads like a domestic argument. It reads like an argument between a husband... <laughs> That's why we, that's why we stack, stack them in fives only. But obviously we didn't this morning. <laughs> it reads like an argument between a husband and a wife. Now that's not surprising because throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described and symbolised, if you like, as the Lord's wife. And in the New Testament, it's the church. 
And so that's why it's like that. But it's very, you think, man, this is tense. This is, this is the back and forth going here. And really what God is doing, God is saying to his people, you're doing this. And they're saying, how are we doing this? Or God says, I've done this for you. And they say, how have you done this for us? And God has to lay it all out. Because basically what it is, they're trying to avert from the fact that they are sinning. Which is what people do, don't we? When we sin, we then try to get out of the fact we've sinned and give 101 reasons why we did it. And we'd be better off saying, you know what, I just sinned. But that's what you have here. Now I'll give you a little bit of history just so you understand what's going on. God, as you probably know, even if you're not used to church through watching the Prince of Egypt or things like this, God rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery approximately in the 1400 BC. And then there was 40 years of wandering in the desert and then under Joshua's leadership they went into the promised land, the land of promise, modern day Israel. Canaan as it was called then. They then lived there for around 500 years as a united nation. Um, and then they divided, they split um, through controversy and disagreement and, um, and through folly really. They split and then really after that um, we find that for about 200 years the northern kingdom survived and then was overrun by the Assyrians. And then for another 200 years, the southern kingdom survived and was overrun by the Babylonians. And so then really God's people were taken into captivity and the, 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 the exile into Babylon is particularly focused on in the Bible. You read about it, particularly in Ezekiel and Daniel. And then there's a promise though, before they're sent into exile, God says, I'll send you for 70 years and then I'll bring you back. God, as ever true to his word, brings his people back and first of all, they, they, they rebuild the temple. And their hopes are very high. They're filled with expectation. It's like, wow, it's going, to be, it's going to be like Solomon's temple, only better, because there's prophecies like the glory, the, the, the latter-day glory will be greater than the former glory. And it's like, wow, we're going to... Be, and then they build it, and you know what? They're pretty disappointed. <laughs> they look at it, and, and there's, there's, what the Bible says there's a mixture of laughing and crying at the same time. The older guys are crying, and the younger guys are laughing. And uh, the, why? Well, because the younger guys are celebrating. They've never seen the temple before. See, because their descendants have been in Babylon for 70 years, there was no temple there. We've built it, it's done. The older guys are weeping, why? Because they remember Solomon's temple. And they're saying, you know what, the promise was the glory of the, the, of the latter house to be greater than the glory of the former house. This is nothing like what Solomon's temple was like. And so they're weeping with grief. And what sets into the nation at this point is a disappointment, a spiritual disappointment. And Malachi speaks into this disappointment. He speaks into this. There's a company of people who are God's people, God's covenant people, but they're disappointed. And they're becoming cynical and sceptical. Now, I just wonder whether that's a bit like the scene in the UK, Christian-wise. I just wonder. See, we're a very young church. And so many of you wouldn't perhaps have a very, uh, wouldn't have much experience of Christian history in the UK, or even maybe you've not, not even read much. But in recent history, 1994, there was something happened among a lot of the churches in the UK called the Toronto Blessing. You may or may not have heard of it. But basically it involved a um, very shocking and surprising outbreak of Holy Spirit activity leading to just people having a revelation of the Father's love in an amazing way. And it was accompanied by some pretty unusual manifestations. There would be lots and lots of laughter for no apparent reason. And even other stuff that was, believe me, it was out there. And uh, churches was wild. I remember turning up at church on a Sunday morning and it was, it just, we, we, we gathered to sing and then bang, the Holy Spirit just fell and it was chaos. I mean, chaos. Glorious chaos, but chaos. 
And all, you name it, it was kicking off. It was all happening. People being filled with the Spirit, people just sensing the love of God, people being delivered of uh, demonic uh, oppression. I mean, it's just amazing. And people began to say, do you know what? This is the beginning of this nation turning back to the Lord. And we kind of imagined, I guess, that we would kind of laugh our way out onto the streets and it would be like Pentecost and there would be a huge gathering. And you know what? There wasn't. Then in 1997, Princess Diana died. I'm sure you all remember that, or at least remember it vaguely. Now here's what happened. Just before her death, a prophet, a prophetess, a woman from Sheffield, who's part of our churches, she, she brought this prophetic word. She said, I see wreaths and flowers being laid um, in, um, all across the different cities in the UK. Um, she just saw this picture. It had never been done before. This was before the days of shrines. You don't know how someone gets knocked over, before you know it, there's a shrine there. Someone gets stabbed, before you know it, there's a shrine there. This is a fairly relatively new phenomenon. So this wasn't going on then. But she prophesied, I see, I see huge kind of shrines of flowers all over different cities up and down the UK. And then Diana died, and then many of you may remember, either you were there or you've seen it on TV, that there was, obviously in London, there was this amazing kind of shrine that was kind of built with lots of flowers, remembering her. But it had, those who couldn't make it to London did similar things in various cities up and down. Now, the second half of the prophecy was this, is that this was going to signify me beginning to break into this nation, God beginning to break into this nation and turn the nation back. So what happened was, once this prophecy got circulated through the churches, and then the death of Diana, the church is like, man, life, it's, it's imminent. And so there, was, there would be revival prayer meetings at Marsham Street in Westminster. And I remember being there, and you're praying, come on God, and there was this huge thing at the front saying revival, and all these Christian leaders were travelling from around the world, and we were praying, we are praying, yeah, it's going to happen any minute now. And it didn't happen. And I think all you need is a few situations like that for you to begin to think, are we barking up the wrong tree? Is, it, is this prophetic stuff really prophetic or is it just kind of random stuff that's coming through? And I think in some ways there's a little bit of that in the church in the UK, a bit of cynicism perhaps, a bit of disappointment. Um, it's the same with the Israelites. And as a result of this disappointment, the way they follow the Lord and serve him, it goes really rotten and really sour, which we'll look at over these five weeks. But God basically wants them to understand that they've been too small-minded you see, when God promised that the glory of the latter house would be greater than the glory of the former house, he wasn't talking about this rebuilding. He was talking about the church. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. He's saying, compared to, compared to the church, you look at Solomon's temple, you think, well, it's, it's a nice building, it's amazing, but it's just there. Well, now we've got the church, we've got people filled with the presence of God that are filling every nation on the earth and being drawn together. It's much more glorious. That's what God was talking about. But because, like you and me, we tend to think imminently, don't we? Well, when's it going to happen? And they thought, well, is this it? Oh, it's not happened. It's not worked. So the heads went down. <coughs> They've been too self-centred. You see, it's all about their generation. It's, we're the Joshua generation. It's going to be our generation. It's all about that. And God says, I'm about something bigger than that. I'm about the whole, the whole of history. You're slow to understand. And in it, You've missed the glory of God. And the whole issue here in Malachi is they've missed God. They've missed his glory, they've missed his majesty, and they do not give honour where it is due. And God charges this against them. We're going to read chapter 1 in a minute, where God charges, where's my honour? Where is my honour? You haven't honoured me. And you know what? People do not have a problem giving honour. People do not have a problem giving honour. People do have a problem giving honour to God. <laughs> I'll tell you that. You know, you go to the 15-year-old gangster, he has no problem giving honour to 50 Cent or whoever his iconic 
hero is. He has no problem. He will worship that particular artist with those values. He will do that. He will become a disciple. He will dress the same. He will speak the same. He will give honour there. You see? You go to the business person whose sole aim in life is to get ahead and to do well in their career, they will honour that ambition. And they will honour their boss and they will do whatever is needed and whatever else falls apart in their life, so be it, I'm going to bring honour here. Or the 60-year-old Confucianist worshipper, he will honour his ancestors. He will worship his ancestors, but the living God, no, no, no. We all have a problem naturally giving honour where it's due to God. Why? Because naturally we are sinful and we don't like it. But the tragedy here is that it's God's covenant people that are not giving him honour. It's his people. And so God speaks a word to his church. Are you ready? Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Isn't Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honour? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. You see, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and it's fruit, that it's food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's emotional, isn't it? <laughs> you can see what I mean now by it seeming like a domestic argument. It's, it's fraught with tension. What's going on here? God is not happy. God is not happy. And basically, whenever you go through a prophetic book, you're going to get the sense that God is not happy. Oh, hey, it's not that God has a problem being happy. The Bible calls him the blessed God, which means the deeply happy God. But when it all goes wrong, God doesn't just pretend everything's all right. He comes and he speaks in why, so he can restore and so he can put things right. Now, there's five ways here that the Israelites dishonour God. And we're going to just work through them just quickly. Just what are the five ways? Number one, they question God's love. I've loved you, says the Lord. You say, how have you loved us? And God gives them a concrete example of his electing love. Jacob I loved, that's Israel I loved, Esau I hated. We'll look at that later. (laughs) 
But he gives them this concrete example. Here's how I've loved you, I've elected you, I've chosen you. They're saying, and they're thinking, but it's this rubbish. I mean, look at the city, it's in ruins. Look at the temple, it's nowhere near what Solomon's was like. How can you, where's your faith or where's your love? And we can get like that, can't we? Well, look at the church today. We read of yesteryear when the church buildings were packed. Now they're empty and they're being turned into flats for people to live in because no one can fill a church. Churches is dwindling. You can say, God, how do you love us? And they say, how have you loved us? Where's the favour? Where are the signs of your favour? That's what they are saying here. Now for us, what is the concrete example of God's love? You see, for them, God, God brings out this fact, I've elected you, I've chosen you. But what, what, how can we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us? We know, don't we? We quote it all the time, Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Let's do it together. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we can still question God's love, can't we? I want to say this to you. If you ever question God's love, you've become over-familiar with the cross. If you ever get to the point where you think, I'm not sure God loves me anymore, you've become over-familiar with his once-for-all demonstration. You see, I love the way God talks about love. He says this, I have loved you. It's not, I love you. That's important. You say, why is it important? Here's why it's important. Because I can say, I love you. And you can think, okay, that's nice. It seems warm and nice. If I say, I've loved you, then you're probably thinking, well, what have you done? Because I'm referring to something that's happened. I'm referring to a concrete act. You see, when God says, I've loved you, he's saying, something concrete has happened so that you know I've loved you. It's not just, I feel nice towards you today. I'm having a good day. Yeah? And I feel warm towards you. It's not that. It's, I've loved you. I've did something to show it. To Jacob, to the Israelites, I've elected you. I called you out. I called you out as my special people. I, I favoured you. And it, Moses makes it clear in Deuteronomy. God says through Moses, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous people than all the others or more strong or more righteous. I chose you because I chose you. I've loved you and I've I've called you out to be a light to the nations. I've set my favour on you to be a light to the nations. You see, under the old covenant, it was kind of rooted ethnically in Israel. Now, Jesus then came as the true Israelite who fulfilled every one of the kind of requirements that Israel constantly failed to fulfil. He fulfilled the law completely. And so those who, who are in Christ now are the new Israel. Because we're in him, who is the true Israelite. Okay? But that's the story. There was a nation that God said, I've set my favour on you. God says to you, I've set my favour on you. You say, how have you set your favour on me? I sent my son to die for you. The moment you start thinking, well, that's old news. Oh, yeah, I know that, but give me something more. Hold on. Backtrack. (laughs) I gave my son to die for you. Stop. Stop there. Stop there. That is incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. And like any week, I could now stop and preach on the cross for half an hour. <laughs> and I'm sure we'd get somewhere beautiful. But I'm not sure that I should do that. But please, 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 God says to you, I have loved you. And when you, if you ever tempted to say, how have you loved us? He will look and you'll suddenly realise that God became man for eternity and still bears those scars. I've loved you, he says. I've loved you. Then he says this, you've basically been despising my name and polluting me. You've been despised. And they say, how have we? It's so 21st century, isn't it? It is so, how have we done that? It's like, who's that um, female comedian? What's her name? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. (laughs) It's the tablets, man, I'm shocked. Okay. (laughs) 
What were they doing to despise his name? Dodgy offerings. So what they're doing, so God makes it clear in the law, right? You're going to bring a lamb, you bring it unblemished. Don't bring a Catherine Tate. <laughs> don't bring one with broken legs, don't bring, one with, uh, don't bring one that's blind, don't bring one with crushed testicles and all of that, right? It's in there, okay? Bring a pure and a spotless offering. Now why? Here's why. Because every offering that was offered in the Old Covenant was pointing towards whom? Jesus! He's the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. He's the one without blemish, yeah? Without sin. And so whenever anyone brings something to offer that is blemished, what you're saying is this is no longer of any worth. Why not? Because the only value in a lamb offering was that it pointed to Jesus. God didn't accept it because, oh, it's a lamb. That's been killed. Oh, I like lambs. They're really cute. You know, someone's killed that poor thing. Well, I'll forgive you. That's not what happened. It's not what, no, no, even the God was really, you know, really sort of PC, do you know what I mean? Save the whale. It's not, no, I like whales, but it wasn't that. But I think we can get, because we're like that with animals, aren't we? We're a very sentimental age. Very sentimental, you know, people, you know, best friends of dogs and all of that. And it's like, it's, it's not normal. I just want to say it's not normal. <laughs> I just want to say that, actually. It really isn't. Have a pet by all means, but it's not normal to act like that, Okay. God wants to, I know people are laughing, but God wants to redeem you out of that. So you can have good relationships with people. Why is it so funny? It's the tablets. Anyway, I know it's a bit, it's a bit un-PC, but we've got to say. So, God didn't say, oh yeah, because I really like lambs, I'll forgive you. Why did, why did God say, I will now forgive you your sins? Because every time a lamb was slain... The Bible says that he was reminded, now the tense is weird, because for me and you, if I'm reminded, it's about the past. But God, the soothing aroma in his nostrils, reminded him of what's to come. Reminded him of Jesus dying on the cross. That's what moved the heart of God. That's what moved him. And so, and so here Malachi is saying, you're bringing lambs that are crippled, you're bringing lambs that are blind. What are you doing? You're just despising my table. You're supposed to be bringing offerings as an act of faith, it's not going to win you your salvation. No, no, no. That's the blood of the Lamb. But you're bringing, it's supposed to be an excitement. Oh, I love you, Lord, and I want to, uh, free will offerings. It's supposed to be an act of joy and gladness and enthusiasm. And instead you're just doing, it's just, it's just embarrassing. You're giving something, it doesn't cost you anything. Now, how does this work for us in the New Covenant? Well, obviously, the off- we looked at it this morning, the offering's been done. But the Bible does refer to offerings. Not sin offerings, guilt offerings, that's all Jesus. But offerings of thanksgiving. Offerings of praise. There's a few things I've looked at, uh, various um, evangelistic fruit is an offering. You tell someone the gospel, they get saved, you can offer that person's fruit to the Lord. It's an offering. It's like a priestly kind of act in one sense. Can refer to money, can refer to our lives, our bodies, can refer to thanksgiving. Now here's here's, here's what I want us to meditate on maybe for just two minutes. The offering of Christ is perfect. It's done. Amen? Perfect. In every way. God totally satisfied with the offering of his son. Totally satisfied. Vindicated to him rising from the dead. That was the vindication. He is the son of God. Rising from the dead. Resurrected. Okay? Utterly vindicated. But then those who come to relationship with God through Christ just washed in that blood as a free gift. And there they are, they're regenerated, they're brand new. It's like, I've been reconciled to God. Then there's a life of worship, not legalistic worship, not, oh, now I've got to do this. No, that's terrible. That's terrible. Voluntary, free will, I just love Jesus offerings, yeah? 
But you see, what can happen is, is that you can begin to despise the Lord if you just end up giving God like the dog ends of your day. You know, you just give, oh, oh you, you, well, you get caught up with your thing and then your life, which was supposed to be an offering to him. Hey, Romans 12. Brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. It's this offering. The Bible says, Romans 6, present your members as instruments of righteousness. I'm going to present my eyes to the Lord as instruments of righteousness. I'm going to look on those things that are righteous. I present my ears. I present my hands. I I will present. So it's very practical godliness. It's very physical. I will present who I am now to God because he's redeemed me. I love him. I want to serve him. I want to walk with him. And so I present my... I present. Now, you see, what we can do is, is we can hold back on that. Right? And, what we, and you get into the thing where you're kind of, really, you're concretely not doing that anymore in that sense, but you do something token to make yourself feel better. And God looks on and he says, you're despising me. You're actually despising me because I've won you to myself and I've purchased you so that we can, we can walk together, so you can be mine. But you're still acting as if you're yours, but you're giving me token things to make you feel better. Yeah? You can do that. Because you you, you're a Christian, you're aware of God. But you can, th- you can be afraid of the concept of totally submitting to him and totally walking with him. I know this. I'm, I'm not telling you this because I've read it. <gasps> I know this. I experience this. Fear. What if I totally go all out for Jesus? What then? What will it mean for this? What will it mean for that? And your mind starts spinning. And so you can end up doing, doing the thing where you just keep it safe and you do the token thing. Why? Because it... it, it it helps to make you conscious while I'm doing, still doing that. And God says, I don't want you. I want you. And if I've not got you, I don't want that. I want you. See, God says, I've loved you. And what does he want? I want him to love me back. What's the, what's the first and greatest command? Love. Love the Lord your God. That's what God wants of love. Affection. You know what it's like. We talked about this before. When you fall in love, you just, you head over heels. You just, you're all about that person. God wants that. That rekindled. The other thing is, God says, you're, just, you're weary. You're actually weary. Because they say, he says, uh, you say, what a weariness this is. So they're going into the temple and they're like, oh, blow, this is a real hassle. How long is this going to take? You know, there's some things I could be doing. Just grab that lamb will do, bang it on there, carry up. Oh, oh, priest's not ready, I'll do it. And it's just, oh, my mind, just get this thing over with. And God's looking on and he's thinking, I can see what's going on in your heart. This serving me thing's just become weary for you. And actually... You'd rather not be doing it. And, and he says this striking, striking thing in verse of, uh, of chapter 1. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. I just wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so you can stop this pretend worship. <laughs> I just wish one of you would have the integrity to say, I'm not doing this anymore because I'm pretending. I'm not doing this anymore because actually... I, I'm going through the motions. I'm finding it a real drudge, and I'm and I'm and I'm, I'm not. I'm that's and I'm that's what I've got into that rut. God says, just shut the door. Go and do what you want to do. Go and play frisbee. Do what you want to do, because I can't even be bothered. It's just, it's just becoming a total stench, even watching you do it. It's very strong. You see, why does God say that? Because God loves reality. He's the God of reality. He hates dead ritual. He hates when we just go through the motions. Now, agreed, there are seasons in the Christian life when you just got to dig in and do what you know is right. I know that, and you know that. But that is not to be the pattern. That is not to be the heart of it. The heart of the thing is just say, God, I'm, I, I feel a million miles from you. I feel totally uninspired, but I'm not going to just give way to sin. 
Because I know, actually, that you are my chief delight. <laughs> and all of my senses are saying, well, I can't, I can't feel that in any way, but I know because I know because I know. God will honour that. But when it becomes this, which is a different thing, it's just where you're just thinking, do you know what, this is just a hassle. Rather than just be doing this, we've got to say, we'll go and do it then. Because that's utterly dishonouring, and it's completely insulting. It really is. It really is. It's like you're doing him a favour. What, like he needs you to come and worship him. Now, idols need that because they're just well, nonsense. The people have created them and there's probably a demon behind it that wants to be God and wants to be worshipped. So that's what idolatry is like. But the worship of the living God, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. He's God. He's perfectly satisfied in and of himself. Amen? He's happy. He's fine. It's our privilege that we get to know him, that we get to worship him, that we get to be caught up. He has shared himself with us. It's staggering. We do not provide any emotional need that he has with our offerings. You know that, don't you? <laughs> He's utterly sufficient in and of himself. And then finally he says, you know what, also this, you're, you're cheating me. Because you're saying, oh yeah, I've got a male lamb and fork, it's a good male, I'll give that one. No one's looking, we'll give that one. So they're making these vows to the Lord. They say, oh yeah, I'll do that, God, yeah, yeah, God, yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that. And they're not doing it. He says, you're a cheat. You're just a cheat. <laughs> and we can do this. We can do it, can't we? We can pledge God, make rash vows, go, oh, I'm going to do this now, and then we don't do it. Or, and sometimes it's tempting, it's, especially, especially with money. <laughs> You've done that. Okay, Lord. You know, the next paycheck I get for this, I'm going to give it to your work. You know. Then it comes, and you're like, oh, no. But when I said that, I didn't have free parking tickets to pay. Huh? Welcome to Canada. <laughs> yeah? And you start, no, actually... You've vowed that to the Lord. Give me. That's not legalism. He's probably a bit silly for vowing it. <laughs> don't make rash vows, Bible says. But don't cheat. You know, when I want to know, it's, well, yes, someone will, and it's pretty big. Yeah? It's God. Now, all of these are manifestations of spiritual ignorance. They've just missed, they've missed who he is. They've missed it. Their heads have gone down and they've missed it. I want to read you a quote. I think it's very poignant. I read it last night. I thought, wow, this is so relevant. This is written around about 1950s. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, so as to be, so to be, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes the situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error, in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshipper in this middle period of the 20th century. Could have been written yesterday, couldn't it? 
God says, I am the majestic one. I do not need your worship, but I have invited you into a relationship with me that you might adore me, be, f- be fulfilled in me. And for you, you think you're doing me a favour. What is God like? I want to end by just going through just very, very quickly. Some of the, You can put out from one chapter of the Bible, Malachi 1. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Okay? So there's a lot more as well. This is from one chapter. Number one, we discover that he elects. He elects. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. I'm not going to go into this now, but I will say this, which hopefully help you see it from a slightly different point of view than maybe from many of you are. You should not be surprised that God says, Esau, I hated. You should be very surprised that God says, Jacob, I loved. Very surprised. Considering all we do, pretty much from day one, is serve ourselves and kick against him and despise him and um, look to find ways of furthering our own cause. It's staggering that God should elect someone in love. It's staggering that you should be here, an object of his love. It really is. God would be completely vindicated as he was in the flood, to destroy the whole of creation. Now, I'm not going to go into depth into this doctrine. I just want to say he has the freedom to elect because he's God. And he does so. He does so. He executes judgment. You see, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, when Babylon came and raised Jerusalem to the ground, they basically stood on and they uh, spectated and they said, go on, level it. Ah, they celebrated. They celebrated while um, Israelite pregnant women were being ripped apart, while the kids were being dashed to pieces, while the temple was being torn down. The Edomites were going, go on, go on. And then you find in one of the Psalms, the psalmist says, God, remember the Edomites, what they did. And God does. He says it here. He said, how, how, how have you loved us? Here's how. I've restored you. After 70 years of discipline, I've restored you. Those guys, I haven't. I've destroyed them. And if they try and rebuild their city, I'll destroy them again. He executes judgment. Now, we view judgment as negative. The Bible views it as positive. It's justice. The Bible makes it clear there will come a day when God will put every wrong right. Hallelujah. Every wrong will be righted by God. So he elects freely. He executes judgment. He exerts international authority. Your own eyes will see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, in those days, every nation had its own God. And they viewed their God as in charge over that nation. They had no real concept other than the Jews of a God who was God of heavens and God of earth. The God of the Bible is the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. He raises up, he brings down, he is in charge of history. He moves the whole thing towards his sovereign purpose. He loves his people, this God, and he asks back for nothing more than love because he knows if he can get you to love him, there's nothing you won't do for him. <laughs> yeah? He just knows, he knows, he knows people, he understands, he's the great anthropologist, he knows what you are. If he can get you to love him, he knows, he knows. Yes, that's what he wants. He wants your affections in your first place. But he's a God who loves first. He says, I love you first. He doesn't say, you love me. He says, oh, I love you. And I'll win you with my love. He detests dead ritual because he's the God of reality. He anticipates and promises global praise twice in this one chapter. He says that all of the nations will come and serve me. You Israelites think you're doing me such a favour by these crazy offerings you're doing. Do you know what? Do you know where this whole thing is going? Every nation will worship me. And we know, don't we? There will come that day where every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. And he expects us to follow through with what we promise him we'll do. He expects that of us. And so really we see in this letter there's a double tragedy going on. A double tragedy. Because not only have the Israelites in their own heart grown cold and turned away from God, God deliberately mentions the nations three times in this chapter. Why? Well, because the Bible makes it clear that Israel had been elected, why? To be a light to the nations. They were elected so they could show off the splendour of God. So the nations, pagan nations looking at could go, what is going on there? Who is this you're worshipping? And be converted. That was the whole idea. But because the Israelites are just totally cold to God, cynical, uh, presenting bad offerings, the nations are looking on and they're going, this God you worship can't be up to much. In fact, it says that if you, if you go to Romans 2, 23, 24, it's a very, very sobering little phrase. It just says this, just briefly, talking about hypocritical Christians. You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. It's really to the Jews in that, in that sense. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you, Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. The nations looking on, see the way you worship in this God so, so wearily, <laughs> so grumpily, so half-heartedly, and they say, man, their God can't be up to much. That's a tragedy. It's not just the Israelites, it's the nations looking on at being robbed of the opportunity of seeing that there is a God who is worthy of worship. And so I want to finish by saying this, for his sake and for our good and for the salvation of the nations, let us be strong in the love of God. Yeah? Let us bring our best to him. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us follow through with what we promise. Maybe in this way we can be part of a genuine turning to him among the nations. Maybe we did think in 1994 we'd laugh eye onto the street and, you know, everything would be fine. Maybe when Diana died we thought it was all going to happen in an instant. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do know this. We are part of an ever-increasing kingdom. I do know that Jesus has promised that he will build his church. But I also know this. The Bible says that when we love one another, the world will look on and they'll know you're the real thing. There's something about the quality of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another as that shines out and we don't hide it under a bucket but we shine that out in our lives. The world will understand this is the real thing. This is clearly different from just another religion, just another faith. This is life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, thank you so much for the Bible and literature that's thousands of years old and written in cultures thousands of miles away by the Holy Spirit, just comes to life and speaks into our situation. And we just declare, Lord, you search the hearts. You know us, Lord. You know us. I want to just pray as we're in your presence, God. And I pray for those who are just feeling weary, just feeling like, you know what? It's easier just to, it's easier just to not worship God. It's just become a, it's become a chore. Just in the doldrums with it. I want to pray, Lord, that you'd reveal your glory afresh. Please, God, I just pray. Would you reveal your glory afresh, Lord? I thank you that you don't beat us into serving you. You reveal how good you are and you win our hearts. I thank you, Lord. This, isn't, this is the very opposite of legalism, which is an attempt to show you what we can do. It's you showing us what you've done and who you are and winning us. I pray, please, God, let us as a church rediscover a sense of majesty, as a church, let us discover a sense of awe in who you are. Let us be genuinely, I pray, by the, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, let us be prevailed upon with revelation after revelation of who you are. 
Open the eyes of our hearts. Even as we come to sing now and praise you, I pray, Holy Spirit, take the words of these songs and drive them into our hearts, I pray. Oh God, please have mercy on us where we're blind, where we're partially sighted. Have mercy on us where we're hard. Soften us, Lord, I pray. Soften us, oh God. Oh God, soften us. Keep us, I pray, from ever becoming a hypocritical community. Lord, of people who appear to be something but are something else. I pray, oh God, deal with us. Deal with us, Lord. Meet with us. Meet, make your presence known among us, Lord God. As we gather and when we're alone, I pray, Lord, I ask it. I ask it for me. I ask it for my brothers and sisters whom I love and whom you love with a perfect love. I ask it, God, would you please be breathing on us and opening the eyes of our hearts so we can see your love and be bold over and be one completely again and again. In Jesus' name. Amen.